Over the course of the retreat, we've offered you a range of instruction in right view and some techniques for using in your practice and some inspiration and encouragement and a lot of reminders, little one-line reminders to help guide your practice. But in the end, practice is not about becoming a technician of a technique or a method or some trick or tool, but rather it is a natural presence of mind and an unfolding of understanding. So while initially and on retreats like this we do make a lot of effort. There are periods of time when the awareness, the mindfulness, the understanding just appear, sometimes pulling you back from a long train of thought or fantasy or just indulging mindlessly in habit. So periodically it is helpful, useful, revealing even, to not do anything in particular. Just sit, be aware, notice what you can. And if the mind drifts off, as it will, just notice how long it is before the Dharma finds you, lost in your interior space somewhere. And the present moment experience just calls your attention and you emerge out of some hallucination in the mind back into the reality of this experience. We sometimes say that you can forget the Dharma, but the Dharma won't forget you. And if we recognize the 
substantial and distinctive difference between being aware or being lost in thought, then we'll recognize it. We'll recognize the Dharma when it calls us. This is the present moment's experience. Acknowledge it. So throughout the sitting this morning and periodically throughout the day, of course, do your practice with all your intention, the tools at your disposal, your understanding, practice habits, but take periods of time to just see what happens if you don't make any effort at techniquing and you just sit or you just stand or you just walk and just notice how often the attention lands on the present moment and how often it doesn't. It's just good feedback to see about the nature of our practice and also to see the nature of momentum in practice. After these seven or eight days, there is a momentum. It calls us to be present. Now this kind of practice of just wait, do nothing, takes a lot of trust. We don't have to scramble, we don't have to judge ourselves. We just have to trust that the Dharma will find us and it'll be recognized and we'll be present again. Just do the best you can without any sense of struggle, striving, hurrying, without trying to make anything special happen, without trying to avoid anything that appears. Noticing things as they are moment by moment. Doing the best you can, let that be good enough.
And any comments about your practice or questions? Hope. So the question is about hope. Is it an aspiration or is it wanting something like that? Or something else. Uh, It can be a variety of things. It can be wanting. You know, geez, I hope this thing happens. Uh, It can be um, just wrong view. I hope I get enlightened or I hope I have a good sitting, or I hope, which is wrong view because things don't happen because we hope for them. Things happen because causes and conditions arise to fulfill what's needed for the experience or the result to occur. Um, it can be a, <clears throat> it sometimes is an expression of faith. You know, we can we can have a, a kind of hope for ourselves, our teachers. So I hope you're happy. I hope you're. I hope you do well in your retreat. You know, we we have that kind of mm, not demanding anything, not being woo woo wow wow about it. Just kind of having a sincere wish. So it really depends on what the motivation is behind hope. But I think. I noticed for myself that years ago when I was reflecting on hope, I I think of it more as a defilement, partly because it doesn't include right view, and, or it may not include right view, and it kind of leaves practice to some other thing that we hope for. So if it's if it's that way, then and not not so skillful. But you know, as I said, there are there are positive aspects of hope, and there are some less skillful aspects of hope. Yeah. Hope is an English word that uh, you know, doesn't have a. Or I'm not aware of what a Pali word is that would be representative of it, or a Buddhist word. And that's an interesting just a, an observation that the Pali language that the Buddha's teachings and his teachings are were originally recorded in is a language that is unique to the Buddha's teachings because what the Buddha understood about the mind and the functioning of the mind and the attributes and capacities of the mind and experience of the mind needed a particular language to articulate it. And English language wasn't designed to to articulate the Buddha's understanding of the mind. And so you can take a single Pali word and it'll take a paragraph or two or an hour-long discourse to actually (laughs) define it in English. So... Some words we like to leave, some Pali words we like to leave untranslated. You know, anatta, dukkha, 
Nibbana, things like that. They just don't have English equivalent. Do you know what the internet is? <laughs> Explain it in one word. <sighs> Can't. You know, it's because of use and you hear it and it's used and, you know, you, you get, you live in the soup of the understanding of it and eventually you get a fuller meaning of it. But I could ask my, <clears throat> you know, some, my elder relatives about the internet and their understanding of the internet would not be your understanding of the internet, right? So, the same, you know, in a, in a language, in a, in, a, in a society where we're in a culture where Pali is, there isn't any, of course. Pali is more a scholastic language, but in a, in a, in a, in a culture where Pali was the language, it would be the, the, va- the, the meaning of words would be known more or less generally and more specifically by those who practiced and only accurately and fully by those who maybe were fully enlightened. Do you recommend meditating with your eyes open or your eyes closed? Is the question whether there's a right way or a wrong way? You know what? Meditation is about the mind. It's about knowing what's going on in the mind. It's not about whether your eyes are closed or open. It's about understanding, do you know if your mind is defiled? Do you know if the mind is aware? Do you know if the mind is you know, being skillful or unskillful? Half our life, not even half our life, but a third of our life, our eyes are open. Let's not assume or let's not mandate that you can only meditate with your eyes closed because then all the time your eyes are open, you're not doing the work. You know, so it's good to know how to watch your mind when your eyes are open and when your eyes are closed. Yeah. No shortcut. <laughs> so this feels like a day one question. but uh, And maybe it's been said, but can you only really be aware of one thing at a time? So the question is, you know, this is a day one question, she thinks. <laughs> and maybe it's already been answered. Uh, and the question is, can you only be aware of one thing at a time? Okay. We've all been practicing for eight days. Let's have a, let's do a survey, you know, like we do. <laughs> you know, in America, let's do a survey and see what the, the, see what the right answer is. How many think, how many, not think. How many of you experience only knowing one thing at a time? Don't, don't be shy if you really have experienced that one thing at a time. That's like, hold them up again. Let me just get a rough count. Okay, 30. And how many of you have directly experienced multiple things, two or more things at a single time? The correct answer... <laughs> 
is yet to be discovered by <laughs> most of us. <laughs> you know what? There's, there's the answer that's in the book. And the answer in the book says one thing. But our experience often seems to indicate something else. What's important is that you know what your experience is. And from your experience, you have a certain understanding. Whatever understanding you have from your experience, not just of how many objects you can know at a time, but everything else about your life, what you know from your experience, hold that lightly. Don't grab onto that as, this is the truth, because I experienced it. There, I know. For those of you who listened to the bedtime story last night about Shweyu Min Sayadaw, who was a teacher for 60-some years, when he was 91, 91, he changed the way he taught meditation. Does that mean he was wrong for the first 60 years of teaching? No. He was teaching what he understood to be effective, skillful, true, right, and saw something different and changed the way he taught when he was 91. So we don't want to reify, make solid, hang on to, grasp, some understanding that we arrived at that was valid for our experience at the time, but may no longer be valid with a new experience later. Okay. Isn't that a good way not to answer the question? <laughs> Does awareness depend upon an object? Uh, I'm going to do a little footwork on this one, too. <laughs> awareness, the word awareness is not a translation of any Pali, Pali word, any Buddhist word. It's kind of an English word that we've kind of used to mean an amalgam of consciousness, awareness with mindfulness, and, you know, kind of like everybody knows what awareness is, right? There's not much agreement on what awareness is. If you, if you just listen to a dozen different Dharma talks from different teachers and different traditions, you'll find that we use the words awareness, consciousness, mindfulness, attention, and other things like that, kind of synonymously, but some people make a big distinction about one thing or another, and there's really no... industry-wide agreement. Okay. So, back to the Buddha. The Buddha said, consciousness is conditioned. Okay? Consciousness is conditioned. What that means is that in every moment of consciousness, which we sometimes can say, every moment of awareness or every moment of mindfulness because they are moments of consciousness. There is an object. That consciousness is conditioned by or that moment of mindfulness is partially conditioned by the object. Yes, that's right. So what that means is that there isn't this just, you know, the, the, the space of the room isn't just filled with awareness and, and suddenly somehow we just kind of pop into it. Or there isn't just a, an objectless awareness kind of 
hanging out in the mind, waiting for an object to appear in it. Awareness is not a physical or even a mental space in which nothing occurs until something occurs. Not that. Wrong view. Wrong view. So does that um, address your question? Oh, I would agree with that totally. That's right. Awareness, using it generally, awareness, mindfulness, whatever, is also impermanent, right? That's what you're saying. Impermanent is transient, it's impermanent, and because it's impermanent, it's also dukkha. It has the characteristic of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. That's right. And it is anatta. That's right. Yeah, that would be, I think, an accurate understanding of the Buddhist teaching. Yeah. Which makes you wonder. What's Nibbana? Don't think about that one. (laughs) Okay. Between mind and thinking. And um, I was wondering if the presence of words is generally a good indicator that thinking is happening. Are words an indicator that thinking is happening? What's your experience? I don't understand the distinction yet, so I'm not I mean, words are always, almost always there. But I, I don't know if that's thinking necessarily. Or... Yeah. I, I think... I think, I word, I, (laughs) uh, words almost always point to concept, some concept. You know, when you think of the word car, well, car is just a three-letter word, you know, but it refers to a concept that we have, not any particular kind of car, but just car. And almost all words have a definition, a meaning, and therefore a concept behind them. So when a word appears in the mind, whether it's a single word or a sequence of words in the form of a sentence, then we're dealing with concepts. And in the Buddhist understanding, all of those, all concepts are uh, cognitive activity of mind, which even though you might not say it's a thought, it is definitely in the th- area or in the realm of thinking. Yeah, the mind constructing meaning out of uh, experience and putting words on it. So does the mind operate without words sometimes? Certainly, mm-hmm. certainly. Okay, hold your arm out in front of you. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, if you hold your arm out in front of you and you feel what you feel after five minutes, you don't have to have any words in your mind at all to know what that experience is, right? So the mind is knowing, 
these experiences. Deborah gave a whole talk on relative and absolute. We could say, and as she did say or identified, relative is the conventional, conceptual understanding we have of this experience. Experientially, it's very different. You just look around the room. What do you see? If you think you see a bunch of yogis on retreat with a couple of teachers up there in a room about so-and-so size that's painted white on the ceiling, brown on the walls, you're deluded. But if you just let your eyes see what they see and you don't put together the colors and shapes, the eyes see quite fine without words. But because we take those colors and shapes into the mind and we massage them into meaning, then we have males, females, retreat, you know, teachers, students, all those things are concepts. But the eyes do the eyes don't see people. The eyes see colors and shapes. The ears hear sounds. They don't hear words with meaning. The ears hear sound. The mind makes the meaning out of the sounds. The mind makes the meaning out of the colors and shapes. So, yes, the mind works without words, but we wouldn't, it's very difficult to recognize the mind working without words. Okay, today is Saturday. It's going to be a change in schedule this afternoon. At 2.15, uh, please come to the afternoon session. It'll be a short sitting, and then we'll take, uh, we'll have an extended period of time for Questions about, any questions you have about practicing outside of the retreat, at home, at work, at play, when you go to vote, and things like that. (laughs) (laughs) And that'll go on till about 3.40. And then there'll be a break, um, a a pee break, get a drink break or something, and then come back in the hall at 4 o'clock. And we'll, there'll be some end-of-retreat announcements from myself, the manager, and one of the staff members uh, of the retreat center. So please plan on being here for most of the afternoon, 2.15 onwards, okay? Today's an interesting day in the whole retreat. Your practice is at its maximum. It's got the most momentum, you have the most clarity, you have the most uh, frequency of notings. And so it's important to get the full, in order to get the full benefit of the retreat, keep the practice going. The retreat's not over yet. You don't need to get your cell phone out. All the planes are running fine. All the trains are running fine. There's no major storms. Um, the rest of your life is, is doing fine without you, <laughs> so to speak. And you don't need to leave early. There seems to be a flurry of people thinking, I've got to leave today, I've got to leave yesterday, or something. I often point to this day as the way we handle this day. When we see the end of the retreat, it's in sight, it's on the horizon, it's coming closer, and the frequency with which we imagine the future, and it's just an imagination, is increases, how we deal with 
the end of the retreat can tell you, can show you a lot about how you deal with the end of other things, like the end of relationship, the end of work when you're about to retire, the end of life. Do you scramble around and try to get out early? Do you feel sad before it ever happens? Do you just think of all the things that you didn't get done and you feel a lot of desire to accomplish them quickly? At the end of your life, how do you want to how do you want your mind to be? In a hurry? <laughs> Scr- <laughs> scrambling to get done everything you didn't yet get done? Uh, think about that. I mean, okay. So pay careful attention and you will learn something immensely valuable about yourself today. Of course, the mind is going to think about the future. It's, going to, it's getting closer. It's, we, we, we will have to make plans tomorrow, but there's plenty of time, really. Um, in addition, we have noticed a sharply increased proliferation of notes to us on the board. <laughs> in all honesty, I have to acknowledge that we too are ending tomorrow and have future things that we're planning for and to do. We will not be able to answer your questions. And we will not be able to schedule appointments for all of you who are hoping for one last uh, chat. It's just, it's just not possible. We regret that we can't. And we know we're, you're all wonderful people. and. You know, we'd just love to sit down and have a, a good old gab fest, but <laughs> probably not going to happen today. I can assure you it's not going to happen today. But just please understand that time is up, and we're not going to be able to do that. Sorry. Other than that, the schedule, let the schedule guide your unfolding of your mind. Okay? What else? Anything else we have to say? See you at 2.15. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.